Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the podcast. Podcast. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Gareth Tunnelly. Hello, Gareth. Hello there. Now we I'm very doing well, thank you. It's a lovely, lovely Sunday as we speak. Um having uh, having I, I do a market on Saturdays and I braved biblical weather yesterday to do a market and see no customers, but that's another story. Wow, see no customers. That's, yeah. that's what rain does to outdoor markets, it yeah. just obliterates the public. Um Frank, we've come together to talk about your film, The Ghoul, which you yes. wrote and directed. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what The Ghoul is? Well, uh, how long have you got? No, I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, The Ghoul is a uh, psychological thriller, and it's about a uh, policeman who is investigating a strange, possibly occult, double murder. Mm. And he goes undercover as a psychotherapy patient in order to follow a lead and try and investigate two psychotherapists that he believes may or may not be involved in some way in this double murder. And while he's in his psychotherapy sessions, the lines between fantasy and reality start to blur and things start to get uh, a bit weird. That's it, basically. I can't tell you any more. I think weird, weird's a good word to end it on because... Because um, I told you I, anymore, I have to delete all copies of this podcast and all previous copies of the exactly, podcast. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know if these references. Oh, will, 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 I don't know if these references will mean anything to, to to you personally. But when I watched it, to me, it made me think of um, Paul Auster's New York trilogy. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it is actually uh, the first one of that. I think City of Glass is the yeah. first. Yeah, that was an actual. You know, conscious influence. Well, there we go. So, no, that honestly, when I was watching the movie, I was just like, this is because obviously, the, I, the where that goes would obviously spoil what we're talking about with this movie. But, but um, if I went into too much detail about it, but also, have you seen Christopher Bowe's film Reconstruction, the Danish movie? No, no, a very different thing. But, but what it does is it, it plays with your expectations in a different way, in the sense that you're watching a film which is also. A novel being written. So as a writer changes his mind or her mind, people who you thought knew each other suddenly don't, and things right. like that. So it's kind of like you're, you're seeing mental patterns emerge without fully understanding them until the reveal. It's it's mind blowing. But yeah, no, your film your film made me think of that as well. There's a story by um, I think it's who was it who wrote the Prestige? I think it's Christopher Priest. Is that right? There's a story. Um, where um, somebody starts writing basically their autobiography and they can't help themselves writing somebody else's uh, <laughs> autobiography. <laughs> this is a great premise for a story. But, uh, yeah, there's lots of, uh, loads of influences kind of feeding into the thing from all over the, all over the shop. Now, you're, you're the writer and director of this, as I said, but you're also, uh, people will know your face from, uh, from in front of the camera as well. Um, very, very, very attentive. Yes. Well, I, I mean, if, I, if for people listening, if I said the priest from Kill List, I think they, they they'd have your, they'd have your card marked. I think for, for a lot of people listening. Yes. Yes. My uh, I, I I was in the I was in Kill List. I was in Down Terrace before that. My parts in Ben Wheatley films started small and uh, got smaller <laughs> until uh, eventually I was behind the camera making a making of. So I thought maybe Ben Wheatley's trying to tell me something here, I should go and make my own film, so, you know, um, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, I was in those films and learnt a lot from watching, especially perhaps Down Terrace, because that's a very low-budget film, mm. uh, watching that being constructed and put together and just watching them pull it off, basically, uh, was a big, big kind of uh, galvanising kind of moment for me. 
No, I can, ima- I can imagine. And, 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 and weirdly, they, they, they does, they does, obviously, it, it's, it's, all, it's all coincidence and not, not planned or anything, but because I can step back as like someone looking at it, looking at the films made in isolation and stuff. It feels like, um, it does feel like the ghoul and kill list exist in a, in a same story universe. I know they don't by any stretch of imagination, but given the occult and everything, it's kind of, it felt like, I felt like I could marry the two up when I was thinking about it later. Well, it's high praise. High praise indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't, we, we, that, that one didn't come up, but I guess it's just there, isn't it? Because it's such a sort of amazing film that it's, it's, it's a bit like people have pointed out Lost Highway. Um, okay. So literally didn't, some people say it and they go, well, it's obvious. Because if you, I don't want to give away too much of the, film again but there are there's a key image in it which is similar to lost highway i guess um but yeah we didn't i don't remember at any point anybody in the production saying this is you know close or too close or you know in a good or a bad way but i guess i guess these things are just in the air and kill this is no different you know, of course just... i mean christ i mean can any, can anyone really claim they create an idea in a vacuum i mean it'd be impossible wouldn't it Exactly. These things are just sort of... I mean, Kill List made such a sort of impression on me that it's probably kind of, uh, you know, um, just there as a kind of, uh, uh, you know, in, in my DNA now, whether I like it or not. No, no, I'd... you and me both. I, I mean, I, I obviously wasn't in it, but, but but when I saw it at Fright Fest, it kind of, when it finished, I was well, kind of like... And I was at that, the same screening. I, yeah. Well, when that screening finished, I was kind of like, well, that's just... In terms of what I want from a horror film... That's that was the best thing I've seen in ages, but it's also ruined my week. <laughs> well, I went, I went, I think it was like the same week, he then did a Q&A at the Curzon, and I went straight to that, so I could see it again. Like, right, yeah. It was generally like, you know, what, and I've had, Andy Stark's been on the podcast early, in the, one of the early episodes. Cool. Um, Andy was a big, big, um, not just influence, but he was, uh, he was a kind of, um, sort of de facto kind of exec on mm. Ghoul, he was at the end of the phone, and uh, we'd phone him up and say, "Is this a good idea or a stupid idea?" And he'd usually go, "Yes, yeah, a stupid idea," and we'd you know do the opposite or whatever. So he was a big, big. What from a creative or from a from a from a from a practical point practical, of view? I mean, the two things cross over. So, um, but it's, you know, when you're on such a low budget, I guess the practical and the creative are kind of the same thing because mm. sort of going through the script, just deciding a lot of this, a lot of what happens in the movie or the way it happens, the way it plays out is a product of the budget. Um, so for instance, just the length of the movie, I mean, mm. it was 70 something page script. Yeah. Uh, and it, before that it was a 90 page script. Okay. And I remember the phone call with, I remember the phone call with Andy Stark where he said, basically you should, you should cut this down. And of course I went, you know, I went, all right, Andy, and secretly was thinking, I can't possibly cut any more from my masterpiece. <laughs> um, but I went away and thought, well, he knows what he's talking about, so I'd better cut a bit. And, you know, I forced myself to cut almost 20 pages. And, of course, immediately went, what on earth were those 20 pages? I didn't need them at all. Um, so that's... It's, it's a frightening part, isn't it, of, of, of a rewrite process, is that things that you've, you've invested in that seem the most important thing in the world, when, when you remove them and you go, hold on a minute, now it works, what was I thinking with that thing before? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I thought I'd gone through that as well. I think you. Mm. I mean, I think you can always go through it one more time. And I think that practically that just saved us. I think if we tried to film, I think the original idea was to film ninety pages in eight days, and in the end we did seventy pages, or at least all the dialogue of seventy pages in ten days. Um, so if we if we'd gone for the former, uh, I would have you know killed everybody and or they would have killed me more likely um and uh it would have been much gnashing of teeth well i I did um i did a script to screen analysis of um a script i could find of texas chainsaw massacre the original one and that that the one the draft i could find was like 104 pages and the and the movie is 83 minutes yeah and when i went through it i literally could could put a red line through 20 pages they were just, just didn't need it and it's amazing when you see it how much they got rid of them. and obviously if you've been familiar with the movie it was like well, this would have just ruined it it was like loads of stuff about horoscopes and right 
you know, you didn't need any more than since she was reading the book. And then the, the, did they shoot that? Did they shoot that stuff? That I don't know. I was really looking at what the finished one was with the, what I could find was the latest draft. But um, yeah. you could, it was a less just doing it was a lesson in you know, like you know, film is about transition, isn't it? You know, and, and about those moments where you go from one thing to another and. Can you fill in the gaps, and do you even need to? You know, it's sort of like as long. I think as you... I'm right in saying that they went through a similar thing with Kill List that we just mentioned. I yeah. Did, uh, speak to Ben or Robin to confirm, but the editor Rob Hill. But um, I believe they went through quite a quite an extensive, uh, ruthless editing process, even after they were, you know, even even in the edit rather than the script. But the thing with a film like The Ghoul is there wasn't enough room there wasn't enough kind of bandwidth in the budget to film stuff that we didn't need so uh we we had to be ruthless at the script stage um and in the end we did in the end there's very few scenes that have been cut there's a few little bits and pieces but Mm. pretty much we had to use everything otherwise we just wouldn't have had a film well let's let's get to the starting point then we've already you've you've already i mean i've by 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 complete chance, I've read Paul Auster's New York trilogy, and you you say yourself that was that was a, a, an explicit influence on it. So where where did the ghoul start in terms of you writing it? What what, what was your spark? Well, it's difficult to trace uh, ideas, I guess, for anything. But mm. uh, uh, suffice to say, I have bad moods, uh, which uh, usually blow over after about a decade or so. So that's you know, fine. Yeah. But that's kind of <laughs> That's uh, one of the uh, one of the things running through it, um, and uh, I wasn't thinking at first of making a low budget film. I was just fiddling around with this script, right? And then I guess a few things happened. Like I, you know, I mentioned Down Terrace, but I've been in other low budget things over the years, and I just started to think. I, and I, also, a big spark was that I was writing other scripts that were attempts at making more commercial things, not sort of cynically, but just sort of trying to think of things that might sell and not getting anywhere. And mm. it became, it became kind of painfully clear that uh, no one was going to give me a million pounds or even a hundred thousand pounds to make a film. Right. Um, so uh, I better just do it myself basically. And so uh, at first I, in fact, up until quite late before we were really, really, past the point of no return, I was thinking it's a silly idea to try and make the ghoul because the ghoul is set in about 20 different places altogether and it's got multiple characters and it's got all sorts of it's got a bit of you know, it's got a quite extensive uh, sequence on the motorway hmm. um, and so I was thinking if I have any sense I'll come up with an idea that's set you know, in a house or in some woods or, you know, some contained, constrained hmm. sort of environment and make a kind of... Like Down Terrace. Like Down Terrace or like, you know, a, like a number of great horror films or or kind of, you know, Jeopardy sort of thrillers. Hmm. Um, but I'm still looking for that idea. I'd love to do something like that. Yeah. But I just couldn't come up with that idea. Um, and um, so in the end, I just thought... I better, I better just make the film that I wanted to make and just find a way to do it. So myself and Tom Meaton, who's in the film and produced the film, and then perhaps especially Jack Gutman on this point, kind of went through the script. Uh, Jack Gutman was the other producer. Mm. Um, went through the script just going, okay, what of this can we do with just a few thousand pounds? Um, and the answer was not very much. <laughs> so, uh, so, <laughs> but that filled your heart with joy, didn't it? <laughs> so yeah, so uh, but it's quite a quite a bracing experience. That it's uh, it definitely it definitely makes once you start thinking, okay, how are we going to get around this, or how are we going to do a version of this that gets the story to the same point more or less, but with you know a fag and a fiver rather than um, you know a fully budgeted production. Uh, it does make things interesting. So, for instance, when people see the film, they'll see that it starts with a big sequence driving into London. Hmm. Uh, and in the original script, or at least the original outline, the main character passes a crashed car. Um, well, that would have been the entire budget of the film there in the, before the credits are even open. So we, we, we cut that. And then, he, and then he comes to a murder scene um, 
which is quite a key central thing in the film. Mm. And of course, in my original script, it was a standard sort of, you know, crime scene investigation, murder scene with, you know, lots of police, forensics, crime scene photographers, um, you know, the full works. Yeah, an army of extras. Exactly. And it was taking a day to film, and it was still being only just doable, and it would have cost a fortune, and it would have been probably the entire budget of the film again. So uh, eventually we came up with this idea that he's coming like a month later and there's only one cop there and it's all kind of uh, a bit clandestine and a bit sort of off the grid. Uh, and it works so much better. You know, it works so much better. It's much more eerie. It's much more effective. Um, and there's loads and loads. Of, in fact, virtually the entire film is, is, is like that. Um, there's a sort of there's another version which is the big budget version, which wouldn't have necessarily been that much better in the end. But in, but in a way, the way you did it, you, you've 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 given yourself. Um, I mean, not to not to drive on the the sort of the feeling the feelings I got of, of remembering Killist as well is that you've ended up with a, with a symmetry in your movie, haven't you? Where where we begin and where we end, they're they're they're, they're almost in the same place, if I remember rightly. It's a yes. Silly, you know, even though it's different action, but yes. but, but your your opening scene is 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 resolved through yeah, the, throughout I mean, the action of the movie. But obviously, the big finale is uh, is 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 the, is, the, is the beautiful moment, and it and it marries up with where we start, which is beautiful. And that looping structure that was there when you know from the start, but it did mean that we you know it's a film that reuses the same locations in different ways. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, reuses. I think it's eleven cast speaking cast members, which is obviously quite quite small, um, and reuses them in all sorts of different ways. A lot of them essentially play maybe not two different characters, but two different versions of the same character. So uh, it's uh, you know we we used every piece of the buffalo, as they say. Well, in, in, ter- in terms of writing it, and obviously on, on the page versus on the screen are always are always very different. And, and like you say, you were going through these iterations with, with your producers who were feeding you back on what's possible and what's not, and, and you were either agreeing or disagreeing and coming up with new ways of thinking. But one of the fundamental challenges you've got here is we've got to we've got to try and see, and you've got to try and show us w- what's happening in somebody's head, which is you know in a novel's a piece of piss. But in, yeah. a fi- in a film, it's not at all, because the film is obviously visual. And unless you did a load of really hackneyed voiceover, it would have been, you know, without any way to tell us, wouldn't it? But you actually, achieve, it actually achieves it brilliantly. And it's and it, you talked about this loop thing. I mean, and that's one of the one of the tools that you've, you've you've used to help us get sort of get a key for us to get in, as it were. Yeah. As much as anything I think else. To be totally honest, there was like early doors. There was um, there was some problems with that with how with how. It's got a fairly. When people see the film, it's got a, an interpretation. The, the sort of uh, the kind of high level interpretation of it um, of what the the main villains are up to is actually quite hard to understand. It's quite sort of high concept and quite kind of mm. it's uh, you know it's utterly batty, obviously. Um, and uh, for ages, I couldn't think uh, of how to get that across because of what you say. You don't want voiceover really it's you know very hard to get right so that's you know it's okay for scorsese but everybody else needs to be careful it is uh, true then it that's it's almost like a rule of thumb that <laughs> yeah yeah uh, don't do it unless you're scorsese no some people make it work brilliantly but it's obviously yeah. um it's obviously difficult um and so it was when rufus jones's character uh coulson started to emerge uh hopefully it doesn't show too much but he is uh, he does carry some of that sort of exposition as to what is going on. He kind of sort of consolidates, confirms even what the audience is suspecting and maybe just kind of quickly spells out some of the kind of crazy logic of it. And because Rufus Jones is so brilliant, he manages to make that seem like somebody's kind of manic sort of... Um, uh, just just part of his madness, basically, and so makes it compelling when it could have just been a sort of dry chunk of explaining and exposition. So, but but uh, also the way that Tom Tom Meaton's character brings him into the story, it's sort of it's down to Tom, it's down to Tom, isn't it? It's not it's not that Coulson 
comes along and says, I'm going to make you understand. It's a product of the way um, Tom's character is going about his business, isn't it? And, and stuff that yeah, brings... Tom, Tom makes you understand every scene through his performance so you know what he's going through. So he doesn't mm. need... In terms of his emotion, um, he's just fantastic because he just makes you uh, makes you understand when he's vulnerable, when he's angry, when he's uh, when he's when he's what level of paranoia or hope he's at, um, you know. And he's, I think, convincing as a kind of cool cop as well. Um, so he kind of just nails all these different levels. So. Uh, that's another. I mean, basically, having a having a, a great lead and a great cast is um, a, a large part of the battle, really, because they just do a lot of the kind of a lot of for a lot of the work of communication for you, um, and you can you know cut out even more. But we did uh, going back to the edit. We did cut out some lines that we just found that we just didn't need in the in the end. Okay. So what do you mean in, in the sense that they ha- they helped on the written page, but actually when you could see what was going on. They became redundant. Yeah, and I think that I think that's it. Yeah, I think they become redundant when you can see what's going on, you know. And I think you just miss them on the written page because you're sort of even when you're even if you're like we had people looking at the script and um, we didn't have full cast read-throughs, um, mm. which would have helped because um, that's when you hear the clunkers. But there definitely were a few clunking lines um, littering up certain scenes. But even, oh, yeah. even the journey of the story itself is 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 a sort of sleight of hand process, isn't it? I mean, obviously, all story, all good storytelling is, but in particular, the story you've chosen to tell, there is an element of where you really want us to believe something, or at least show something, and then at certain points, you're going to start, you start to go, no, that's not what you're watching. You're yeah. watching, and this. in a way, it's easier for us than a normal story, because in a normal story, you have to, in a normal story, you have to withhold. Um, information without, you know, it's the Hitchcock thing of never lying. Whereas mm. we break, we break that golden Hitchcock rule, um, but I guess we get away with it hopefully because we uh, we we tell the audience early enough, uh, so it becomes part of the premise. Basically, I guess that's I haven't really analysed it enough to to communicate that very well. But I guess the Hitchcock rule is. You can't have a twist at the end, which relies on having lied to people. Lied to oh no, no, sure, no. You, 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 you give right. it us. You give it us early enough, but, but it's yeah. just, it's just more the fact that that, that Tom, Tom's characters play acting, as, as, and then move into paranoia. Yeah, is seamless. But, but you understand it when you're watching it. You don't. You're not thinking. Oh, he's just he's reached second level paranoia. It's kind of like, oh right, what the hell's going on here? So then suddenly we're the mystery is what's dragging us forward. Then so it's not about what's the twist. It's like, oh my god, we've we've gone there, have we? Given what yeah, we've already I understood. Think, uh, I think it's just it's again comes down to Tom's performance. Basically, he he always he always just makes every scene uh, very very real. I should say as well that Tom uh, produced the film or co-produced it with me and, me and Jack Gutman. Um, so when, whenever you see one of those intense scenes that Tom's doing, you have to imagine that in between takes he's going, uh, how many vegetarian lasagnas do we need? Has <laughs> uh, somebody paid for the parking? Um, so all of that, all of that low budget. Stuff. So it's a, you know, it's a heroic uh, performance on all fronts, basically. But yeah, he, he basically... He just carries the emotion of the of the whole piece, and he doesn't really when he when he segues from like you say when he segues from one reality to the next he doesn't he doesn't overplay it he doesn't really sort of uh, he doesn't sort of overtly play it at all he just plays it as though it's very very real which I guess for people um, who are uh, I don't know what the right word is, but sort of maybe undergoing some sort of psychosis. To them, it's not, um, you know, it's not a fantasy. It's interwoven with with everyday life. I think coming back to the uh, to the budget as well, uh, that helped us. Uh, it's obviously a film that uh, uh, that takes place in at least two different realities. Yeah. And if I'd had more money. Uh, if I'd had a million or ten million or whatever, I would have been tempted to push one of those realities into a kind of stylized space of some sort. Mm. Um, but because 
luckily, we have no money. Uh, we uh, it all kind of looks the same, and so what you get is you get this effect where uh, Tom Meaton's character seems to have constructed his fantasies out of the sort of mundane, everyday realities of his life, which I think is uh, is is kind of realistic for most of us, and um, and makes the film that much more effective. No, and, and, and uh, yeah, it's it's completely compelling for that reason. And then when you then add in the sort of energy and mania of Coulson, and then the uh, the 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 characters that the the characters that come later that begin to sh- to sort of tell us what's really what what really might be going on in this other reality. I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm at pains myself here not to. Not to spoil it for anyone who's not seen it, so I'll uh, maybe I won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't go down this theory I was just going through my head then. Um, so, it's for, a tricky for, one to talk about, isn't it? If we're assuming people haven't seen it, but, yes, uh, yeah, yeah we'll totally. But it is. But uh, I think you know, on one hand, like you say, what Tom Meaton's doing is he's he's managing to skulk around brilliantly, and at the same time, we're we're seeing he's a man an excellent skulker. He's, he's clearly going through a lot more than just keeping his head down, which is a mate, which is great, and equally. When the character of Coulson becomes more prominent, it's 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 like oh look, there's mania. That's why people go to see therapists. So you've got this this nice contrast anyway. And then Alice Lowe's character becomes I can never quite. I've been only watched it once myself, so I'm, I mean I'm, I'm I'm riffing on on just having seen it the ones. Um, and she's she's the she's a combination of of sort of help and a listening post at the same time. And you're never quite sure. What... I think again, Alice does a great job. She. <clears throat> She plays two characters, essentially, mm. uh, two or two versions of the same character that I don't think she normally plays. I mean, she plays essentially a sort of noir kind of almost sort of femme fatale, which I know she's parodied before brilliantly, um, but she's never had a chance to play that, as far as I know anyway, I might be missing something, but play that kind of straight. And again, she brings a reality to it. She doesn't over. She doesn't overdo it. And then, in the other kind of level of the film, she plays basically an ordinary person, which is difficult. Uh, I don't think Alice. I think whatever you say about Alice, she's not known for playing ordinary characters. Uh, she's known for playing. Well, I was going to say her and Dan Dan uh, Skinner are the same. I've never seen Dan play anything so straight before. I don't think. No, exactly. And yeah. it's wonderful because I'm completely disarmed by it as well. You know, yeah. with your expectations, both those, both Alice and Dan, have completely disarmed me with the way they played it. Because I'm, you can't help but bring your own expectations of someone, having seen them yeah. do stuff. Yeah, no, and, and uh, I think it's hard. It would be hard anyway um, to play straight in something that's not a social realist film. But they, they kind of ground it, and they, yeah, they just make it feel like it's taking place in recognisably the real world. Hmm. What do you remember being the sort of sort of hardest story telling challenge for you for this? And, and was that about you on the page, or was that to do with the the the, 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 the challenge of getting it produced? So much anything else? Um, in terms of the story, I remember uh, at one stage a few years ago having uh, you know you, you know you have your your standard sort of story cards, your scene cards as a screenwriter. Yeah, had those. Had those up on my wall, had them blue tacked to the wall, and I started to realise I was becoming a bit like the Coulson character with his chart on his wall. Um, I thought, this is not a good look, is it? If, if something happens to me and the authorities find me here with uh, loads of cards on the wall saying things like Psychor- uh, psychiatrists brainwashing patients, and lots of books on the occult, it's not going to be a, not going to be a good good story in the local newspaper. So I just went back to the word documents. Um, but yeah, sort of. <laughs> Sorting out the plot was um, was a sort of ongoing thing, and even into the edits. I mean, we were pretty good by the time we got to production. Um, and I actually think cutting that twenty pages, even though that was done for sort of practical, pragma- pragmatic reasons, that probably helped. Mm. But then in the edits, in terms of story, it's weird. I don't know what other filmmakers find, but I find it the hardest thing is to is to um, uh, predict what will be clear and what won't be clear to an audience. It's I find it almost impossible. So we've obviously got very 
kind of cerebral, quite kind of, um, you, you know, you know comp- for better or for worse, quite complicated plot um, and uh, all of that, all of that good stuff. But it wasn't that that was unclear to people. So, um, for instance, let me get too into the boring detail, but when he go, when early on in the film, uh, Tom Meaton and Dan Skinner go to Rufus Jones's flat, and Rufus's character is obviously not there. Hmm. In the early edits, people thought that that was uh, Chris's flat, and on the page, it's obvious because it says. Coulson's flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, but you can easily miss these things. And so we had a terrible... Tr- we didn't realise at first, because people don't necessarily tell you that they don't understand something. They just take it the wrong way, and, you know, you have to sort of work out for yourself from the other strange things that they're saying. Um, but in the end, we went back and filmed uh, a lot of that second unit stuff, including a big sign on a buzzer that said Coulson in big letters to uh, to nail where it was that they were going. There's, there were lots of things like that which are fairly mundane but they they, they matter if you get them wrong. I was going to say what you just said though, is it, I guess we all get used to the big establishing shot which is we're about to enter the floor, we're about to do this so we don't, but then the idea yeah. of identifying somebody's place of residence as, yeah. a, as a key story point you're right. Yeah. You still need that establishing shot, and obviously it's different language for that. But equally, yeah. it's just as meaningful, isn't it? And I think you see the exterior of Chris's at night, and so even if you did see an exterior at that point in the day, it wouldn't necessarily help. Mm. <clears throat> it's just these things that you just don't catch until you're in the edit. There's almost always something, um, in my experience, um, and uh, yeah, thankfully we had. Um, we basically we did all the all the dialogue st- stuff as I say in about ten days, and then about four or five months later we went back and did all the pickups and the second unit stuff. So by that time we'd had, you know, not just an assembly but a fairly good kind of rough cut that we could say what was working and what wasn't working and what needed explanation, and that was one of the things. So yeah, there were all kinds of and there's you know there's loads of things that that were in the story for for ages i mean you just you just i think anybody any director uh or writer director inevitably clings to things and if you didn't you wouldn't be doing your job because it's your job to fight for stuff but of course you're not always right so um if you look if you watch very you have to watch very carefully but at one point the in this in the film as it is um tom meaton's character passes uh, a kind of, um, it's a sort of engraving of a lion. You really have to blink or you miss it. Mm. But uh, when he's on his way to Moreland's flat, to Jeff McGivern's flat, he mm. passes passes a kind of, uh, 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 on top of someone's gate are two, two carved stone lions. And we found these in the locations and I became... Uh, obsessed with these things as a kind of recurring motif. So in an early, in in early cuts, in fact, until quite late, um, they kept on recurring right. until until eventually I was persuaded these don't add anything. These damn lions, you need to do away with these lions. <laughs> uh, and you know, it was one of these things where a bit like the twenty pages. Once they'd gone, I was like, okay, yeah, we don't need them at all. Um, what was what were you convinced it was giving you then that the mate that, that sort of drew you to it and then thought oh this will work as a as, I as think a... I think I thought they looked good which they which they sort of did although right. to be honest we never quite got the shots right we had we had a kind of homemade uh, dolly which was a wheelchair with two planks of wood sticking out the back that we uh, would put our DOP Ben Pritchard on and wheel along and we used that to do these kind of gliding shots. So I think they, I think they, they could have, they almost looked good or mm. almost looked brilliant. Um, and so I've kind of clinged to them for that reason. I think I was also um, at that stage, maybe over egging some of the recurrence. Again, it's very hard. This is a film that depends on the car- on the audience uh, knowing uh, okay, now we're in the same location we were in half an hour ago. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as when you're editing and finding the angles and finding the shots, you don't because you know all the footage inside out. You don't know what it's like for the audience. You know, you don't. It's very hard to to gauge 
how clear it is for the audience. And so I think I was just over-egging that. That was the that was the reason I was over-egging, kind of like, okay, every time we see these lions, we know we're going to see, because they were so distinctive. Ah, okay, okay. So we know we're going to be in the same place. Got you, got you. But, uh, but it turns out we, yeah, we just didn't need them. And I think, uh, you know, what you learn as you go along is that the audience's eye, as long as you grab them with the story, as long as they're watching and really watching, they're incredibly um, attentive and will pick up on, you know, very subtle things. And they'll also pick up on things that you don't want them to pick up on as well. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, obviously, a, f- a film set is, is, is fairly hierarchical where... Where in in in, sen- in in a lot of senses everyone's looking to what the director wants to do as a way of moving. It doesn't mean the director does everything, but clearly all eyes are on what the director wants to achieve and what the plan is, and that's working alongside the actors and the producers. Now you've already said your producer is also your leading man on on one level. So how how did you manage? How did between years, or even how did you before you got going on the shoot, sort of work? look at that relationship and how that would work in, in, in a practical sense. So you could get what you want, and equally, Tom, Tom's getting what he wants as an actor, but also Tom's getting what he wants as one of your producers. It sort of seems there's a lot going on there, isn't there, that, that doesn't matter to what we see on the screen, but obviously you've got to achieve what we get on screen. Yeah, I mean, um, we, we worked on developing it for so long, we were pretty much on the same page, and um, Tom was very involved in casting the movie, Okay. Um, and I would say that, I mean, everybody did everything in terms of production, really, but I would say maybe uh, Jack Gutman and myself were more uh, across some of the more practical kind of vibe of things. Uh, but, you know, it all kind of crosses over. Mm. Um, but but um, uh, I think that during production, it was really a case of trying to take the weight of the production a bit so that during the actual shooting, Tom didn't need to worry quite so much so he could concentrate on what he was doing as a performer, mm. basically. Um, and uh, like I say, we had you know we had a cast that uh, largely knew one another. So um, myself, Tom, Dan, Alice, Rufus, uh, Josh Topp, who plays Danny in the uh, party scene, um and, you know, a few others uh, all have known each other for, you know, 15, 20 years or something. Um, so, so um, you know, they all know I'm an idiot, basically. So they all just ignored everything I said. No, I mean, they, uh, they, <laughs> it's, it's just a good, uh, it's just a good relationship there. And then uh, the people who we didn't know so well, like Paul Kay, who we, are, who we know a little bit, but uh, didn't know him quite so well, and Jeff McGiven, who I'd never worked with before, and Neve Cusack, just kind of slotted in uh, into that dynamic brilliantly. And I think a key thing for us, a really key thing, was yeah. we had um, we had two brilliant first ads. So one for the first sort of block of kind of five days or so, and one for the second block. Hmm. Uh, so we had Adam Jenkins and Harriet McDonald, um, and Adam did the prep um, with us. And so he, he just completely uh, held things together really while I was, you know, if I started to lose my mind, uh, he was, he's just a safe pair of hands. And I think having a, having a brilliant first is just a godsend to any production, any, any director. Oh, it makes sense. It's, a, it's like the, um, it's like the angel, they're like the angel and the devil, aren't they at the same time? They kind of they want everything to move forward because they've got the schedules to meet, but also they understand we need to make the production be as good as it can be at the set without compromising it to get forward. It's sort of... Yeah, and the real skill is to always make it seem like you've been an angel, which <laughs> Adam and Harriet both have that that skill. Brilliant. Um, so, so yeah, no raised voices uh, on the, on the show. Brilliant. Uh, from from your from an actor's point of view, uh, as, as you as. You, you bring to the you bring to the role of director. What what lessons for, as, as you as an actor being the other side of what directors have to say and not say? Did you did you bring to your to the production for, to help your actors on set? I think all it does is give you some sort of sympathy or empathy with um, what it's like when 
you know, you hear somebody go, okay, running up and action. Um, what that's what that's like and when it works and when it doesn't work and why it works and why it doesn't work. You get some sense of that. And then when you come over to the other side of the camera, you just learn that really there's, there's only so much you can do. I mean, we had some rehearsals. There was mm. some room for discussion there. So we rehearsed with Alice, we rehearsed with Dan, we rehearsed with Rufus, rehearsed with Neve and Jeff, I, I believe, um, you know, and so, uh, and so, but that's mostly, that's mostly script, really. That's mostly this line doesn't make sense, or you think something makes sense, or the actor thinks that they, that they don't have any questions, and then when you start going into it, it turns out there's loads of questions. And so the rehearsal was the place for that, because on the day, we just had no time at all. We're just grabbing stuff, you know. We're just, there's just enough time to light it. There's just enough time to you know, do final checks, uh, costume, makeup, and art yeah. department, all that. And then it's really, you know, you've got two or three takes and you're, and you're on to the next setup. And a lot of scenes were only kind of three bits of coverage. So there's no time for, um, for much direction. All the direction's been done by that time. And you're basically just kind of firefighting and troubleshooting, really. Um, and um, so a lot, so so you know, just as the shots were all planned out uh, a few weeks in advance, like you know, all the shots, mm. and in in a way, the acting was as well, or at least the sort of directorial decisions. Uh, and so it just comes down to having a good cast. They say ninety percent of directing is good casting, um, and it's especially true when you're on a low budget film because mm. there's no time on set you know you sort of see those making of shots where somebody seems to be having a um uh some big discussion with an actor where the director seems to be having some discussion with an actor in reality they're probably they're either talking about what time lunch is or they're <laughs> going, uh, or they're going uh just do it faster or can you do it slower or louder or it's quieter, and that's about that's all. The, that's all there is time for. It's all in the gesticulation, isn't it, for that moment? It is, yes. I mean, they just, I think the I think the cast just managed to interpret my various levels of uh, panic and mental breakdown as direction. They just, you know, they see how many uh, packets of Jaffa cakes I'm compulsively eating, and uh, just take their cue from that. It was it was prompted by I interviewed a guy called John Fallon, who who is a. a Canadian writer director, but he come from an acting background, and he said when he was doing his debut feature, it was a, it was very for him. It was very much about he'd been on sets where everyone spends ages getting lights ready, set ready, and then they just go right actors get it go shoot. Yeah. You know it, it, what he wanted to do was allow some of that sort of almost like I mean, it sounds like a really bad comparison because wood is bad for wood and an actor is not the right thing but you know the way you bring you let wood dry out where it's meant to be so it can get used to what's going on it's like it's almost yeah. like give the actor some of that breathing space as well if you're going to expect them to do a big emotional scene then as much as you've given the, the, the lighting guys time to get things ready then there's a there's a moment before you start going we're rolling where you've got to make sure the actor's ready as well yeah I mean we'd we, you know we We'd love to have had more time to mm. to let things breathe. I think you get, I think it's a balance. I think you get kind of, it's about the percentages really. I mean, I think what we didn't have time to do, which I would have liked to have done, was do that thing of going, okay, with each setup you do one off script, you know, so you so you get the script and then before you switch positions, or swing a lens, you sort of go, okay, let's get, let's do one which is not really improvised, but kind of just looser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't have time to do that as a kind of formal thing. Um, but I think, again, with a cast that's just done a lot of stuff, and a cast, it's maybe because it's a cast of, uh, quite literally, Stuart, a bunch of clowns. Um <laughs> Yeah. And I mean that with the utmost respect. No, no, it's top bullying. Because <laughs> uh, they've come from, I think, you know, huge, not everybody, but a huge amount of the cast have, have some experience of sort of live stuff. So some of that's creeping in anyway. I mean, they were very good with their lines and they were, they were 
on this. We got the script covered, but there was a little bit of that creeping in anyway. So it's sort of um, it's sort of achieving what you just mentioned there of getting some of that kind of organic kind of uh, feel in there. Um, even when you don't have much time, there were certain there were certain scenes um, that went off much more. So we had a guy called uh, James Ayres Kenwood uh, uh, on our film who played the kind of um, horrible thug that Tom Meaton meets on the stairs, uh, who uh, threatens him. Um, he, is a, he is a horrible piece of work, Kim. He is, and he, uh, he that scene was supposed to be very minimal mm. and almost no dialogue. And it was actually, until quite late, I was thinking, let's just do it in a long shot. It was going to be in a park, and all things changed and switched around for all sorts of reasons. And then he turned up, and he was so fantastic that he um, just took the scene by the scruff of the, scruff of the neck and just ran with it. And uh, he did improvise. In fact... This slap is not in the script. He slaps Tom Meaton's character, mm. and that's that's not. This is not something I would recommend to actors. <laughs> Just uh, hitting each other. The slap was uh, was improvised, um, but we liked it so much. We said, "Okay, let's do that again and do it from all the different angles." So uh, <laughs> hopefully, Tom Meaton is a very understanding uh, man who doesn't mind me. <laughs> slap, slap for his art. Um, but then he got a kiss from uh, Rachel Stubbings in in another. Uh, scene that was also improvised. So you know, you you know, you win some, you lose some. What you yeah, what you lose on the swings, you gain on the roundabouts. <laughs> now, Beck. Now, the one thing you do have, con- well, while you, 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 your constraints and, and time to shoot is is down to the performance you get. The one thing you have control of is what you do with uh, ben- what your conversations are with Benjamin Pritchard, isn't it? As, of, from your cinematography point of view, to help you keep it interested in terms of what what else goes on top of the performance itself. So what were the conversations there and what, what were the influences you were trying to do? Because, like, you know, a lot, a lot of the film is, is very much reliant on sort of two handles, isn't it, conversations between two people yeah. establishing a moment or establishing a, a key point where we're moving, where we're jumping off to and things. So what was your decisions there also? I guess, I guess the, the, the decisions you're doing from a cinematography view change as the story's changing because you obviously want to want the... The, the image we're seeing to convey something more than just here's, here's Tom, here's Alice, so to speak, and stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, Ben's just one of the most resourceful uh, cinematographers around, I'm sure, because he's achieved, achieving all this with, uh, with you know, very, very little support, very little, um, just very little money. Um, and a he, did a, he did a great job on the chamber. We had we had him on. We had uh, oh, Ben Parker yeah. on uh, last year for Frankfest talking yeah. about that movie. Yeah, well, he's he's fantastic, and I've worked with Ben, you know, for you know on and off for about you know at least ten years. Um, and you know, he's uh, I've never given him a, a big budget to work with, and he keeps coming back for some reason. I don't know what he must <laughs> I don't know, some sort of Stockholm syndrome or something. Maybe like Jaffa cakes. Exactly, yeah, he just likes the Jaffa cakes. Um, but uh, so some of it, so we had discussions, it's the usual thing, there's basically two phases of discussion. There's the early phase, which is the dreaming phase, which is very important because you've got to do a bit of that. Mm. Uh, but then there's the phase when you go, this is actually how much time we've got, um, and a lot of the ideas go out the window. Um, so early on we sort of spoke about um, Melville films, um and sort of having some of that kind of classical approach. And some of that still Jean, is... Jean-Pierre there. Melville, you mean? Yeah, Jean-Pierre Melville. Yeah. Um, but um, but I guess what I associate with um, with things like Le Samurai or Circle of Red are things like big, elegant, moving masters. And we just didn't have time to do those. Okay. We just didn't have... We just As soon as you lay down track, um, you're, you know, you've lost you know, an hour, basically. We're not lost, but, you know, you've spent... Yeah, yeah, hour, yeah. Basically, you know. Yeah. Um, and sort of since the ghoul have started uh, doing stuff with gimbaled rigs a bit more, and they're getting better and they're getting cheaper, and you can sort of achieve some of the same thing with with those, uh, even on lower budgets. But we wouldn't have been able to stretch that on, on the ghoul. So um, 
so it tends to be, you know, on sticks quite a lot um, for the dialogue scenes. So the actual angles are quite static. Yeah. So it's really down to Ben's Ben's lighting. And I think if you go through a scene like the Moorland scenes in that study, there's just a huge variety of expression from daytime scenes to tungsten nighttime scenes, but still kind of variations within that. Um, so the daytime, sometimes it's very uninflected and natural, and then sometimes it's quite kind of, there's like halos around people's heads. There's sort of, there's kind of, um, he does different things with filters. There's a whole variety of stuff. They're all shot in a day, all of those scenes. So there's a huge, huge, huge variety of uh, different uh, things going on. Um, all with these kind of crazy kind of 20 minutes to change the lights kind of uh, turnarounds. And then we, when we did move the camera, I think one of the things that turned out quite well was that because of the limitations, because I sort of said, let's, let's not have track down. I don't think we, we didn't, we never laid down uh, track, um, but we did have a kind of uh, top mounted, tripod slider you know mm-hmm. and so on the few occasion where that gets used you can't well hopefully you don't notice it but but unconsciously it has a big effect because it's used so sparingly so again a lot of this comes from conversations with ben pritchard um so if you go through the uh, neve cusack scenes they start off static and then right towards the end you get a little bit of movement in um which i guess just and also that the angle moves from a kind of side-on profile, um, whatever that is, uh, 90 degree or whatever that is, 45 degree, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, what is it? 90 degree. 90 degree uh, angle. It sort of moves round um, into the eye lines, and then by by the time the characters are kind of opening up to one another, um, we're quite tight in on the eye lines, and we start to use camera move. We used to we use the slider to sort of gradually move in on Tom and move back on the reverse. No, it really, it really felt that those moments, because at first it's quite stark and it's, it's, it's a lovely symmetrical shot, isn't it, of, of yeah. this stark room. And then it's almost like you've invited us, the audience, to go and have a look around and they don't know we're there. It's kind exactly. of, it's, yeah, you slowly, slowly get drawn into the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, as Tom Meaton's character sort of opens up and, re- and reveals a little bit more about who he really is and uh, what's going on in his mind. And then, obviously, beautifully, in terms of that, if that's a, ther- a therapy scene, then the, the brilliant contrast later on is when he first goes to Moorland and yeah. we're, we're in a whole different environment, doing exactly the same job, but obviously with a diff- it's a different approach, a different... I mean, the conversation is amazing. The, the, the words you're putting in Moorland's mouth completely throw you because you're you're like Tom's character. You're kind of like, I'm used to what Neve was like, thank you very much. Who the hell are you? Yeah, and that's Jeff McGiven. I mean, that that, um, that part could so easily have been played. I just can't imagine anybody else in the role, really. Mm. So, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Thank God for Jeff McGiven. Um, but uh, he just brings a kind of lightness to it. Uh, when it could have been quite portentous, um, some of the things that he has to talk about, some of the kind of highfalutin uh, themes and topics. Um, but yeah, Jeff just brings that lightness to it uh, and brings a humanity to it. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, well, it's that be- it's that beautiful of the fact it's normal, isn't it? Tim? What Morland's talking about is normal. It's not. It's it's not unusual to us. Because we're, yeah. we're not used to it, but obviously he's said it a million times, I guess, and so to him it's normal. Yeah. There's a great, um, I don't know what you call it, but a, but a, um, a dedication in, a, in the Ken Casey novel, uh, One Flew in the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, and it's dedicated to somebody, and it says, you told me dragons did not exist, then you showed me to their lairs. <laughs> um, which is a great, and I thought thought about that with uh, with that character, but especially Jeff's reading of it. He makes it all seem... He, he basically comes across like a sceptic and like a kind of quite bluff kind of... 
not cynical, but just sort of down to earth, sort of earthy kind of character. But he's all the time kind of winking at you, going, "No, there may be more to the world than meets the eye," uh, and he just pulls that off just fantastically. And yeah, it, it's a uh, it's a huge, huge part of the film. Well, I mean, and this is a very tiny part of what he does, but just that first moment where he starts explaining the way that glass sculpture work, I was like, I was like, what the hell is he going on about? This is blowing me because I've seen obviously that kind of glass sculpture, and he started yeah. talking about where it starts and where it where you end if you follow it with your finger. Yeah, and I was like, I've never looked at that kind of glass sculpture like before. What? <laughs> and this is already in a film that's already making my brain work, and then yeah. you, you're bringing me something else to think about. And he makes those um, he makes those concepts accessible, and he makes them fun, mm. uh, and he makes them. He makes them funny somehow, even when there's no jokes to hang on to. He makes them. He's just got a twinkle in his eye, and um, uh, you know, there's a there's a line where he says, "You'll find I'm quite open to woolly ideas," and I think that's it. It's just it, it really, even if all he's saying ultimately is is nonsense, it just doesn't matter. You just want to listen to the guy, um, and it's just yeah, it's all down to Jeff's performance basically um and jeff uh, i think we only we only you know got the idea obviously jeff's very very well established um you know very famous uh, going back to he was the original he was in the original cast of the original radio hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy mm-hmm. um, so it's not like uh, it's, uh you know, we, but for some reason we didn't think about him until relatively late. I think it was like you know, with a couple of weeks to go, um, that we got him on board. And my God, he uh, yeah, he knocks it out of the park. Well, look, we've um, we've covered quite a lot of ground here. And the one thing I'm I'm I'm, I'm realising we've not said is when is the ghoul available for people to see, and how can they see it? Uh, it is in UK cinemas from the fourth. Um, from the 4th of uh, August. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what when this uh, goes out, but... It'll uh, be just before then, so it'll be all right. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, so from Friday the 4th of August, it's in UK cinemas. And in the US, it's uh, in cinemas from the 11th of August. And I believe it's also available on Video On Demand, on things like Curzon Home Cinema and other places as well. And... Um, there's going to be a DVD and Blu-ray in September, but let's not think about that. Let's all go and see it in cinemas. Let's all go and see it in the cinema, indeed. Well, look, uh, Gareth, thank you very much for your time talking about The Ghoul. No worries. I feel like you've reclaimed the name after the... Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the 1975 Ghoul with Peter Cushing. I have. Yeah, it's which, fantastic. Which It's fantastic in its own way, but it's, uh, I, I do a series on John the podcast. Hurt, John Hurt as well. It's, well, he's, he's the standout part of the yeah. movie, I think. Uh, I, do a, I do an offshoot series of the Britflix podcast called Five Great British Horror Films, where people come on and talk about... Not, I don't want people to do the definitive, because that would just be a lot of people talking about Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, Blood on Satan's Claw, and Witch Finder General forever and ever. But people come on, and one person that came on, uh, Gareth Danlow, uh, talked about The Ghoul, but used it as a reference point to say this is where we'd come to the end of a good run in British horror, and The Ghoul maybe is that point. And we, we had to wait until Hellraiser in 87 for it to pick itself right. back up again, which I thought was a nice, you know, not so great that, that horror in Britain went down the pan for a while, but... Um, is Wicker Man between? Is Wicker Man after? Oh, it's before Wicker Man. Wicker Man's 74. No, no, that's what I meant, so... so yeah, it's before The Ghoul, yeah, yeah. You, you've kind of... Because we had such a high, such a heavy production, you know, the, the, the amount of production going on in Britain yeah. was phenomenal. I mean, God, don't, don't we wish those days were here now? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but clearly there'd been maybe a little bit of complacency in what you needed to do in terms of the production. You know, you think of all the, the care and attention you, you, you've been talking about with your movie. You don't you know, so you see that in, uh, in, the, in the original Ghoul. Not that there's any relationship to yours beyond the title. But, it's, but it has some great ideas, and, yeah, the, uh, the Hurt character is fantastic. Yeah. But look, well, so you're, as, long so you're... as long as people don't come expecting to see John Hurt and Peter Cushing, they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll be fine. Well, look, your your the 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 ghoul night two thousand and seventeen is what say Friday the fourth of August. That's right uh, in cinemas. So check your local listings for details and stuff. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Gareth. Thanks, man. It's been great. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, 
Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.